Have any of you listening ever had to feed a large group of, of horses? Whether they're individually stalled in barns, or you may have had a bunch of horses in paddocks or out in pasture. I remember my first experience of feeding large groups of horses, most of them in university settings, and it was out in California. And this was a couple decades ago. And in the morning, you know, crisp California air, always a little bit warm, sun's out, rising over the mountains. And we would fire up our tractor with the wagon. And just that smell of the farm, it's just something that once you smell it, it just sticks with you for your your entire life. And pulling up to our hay barn and loading up bales of alfalfa hay and that, that sweet aroma of alfalfa, I just love it. And then we would drive over to a, a big pile of steamed crimped corn. And I cringe at the thought today, as my career has progressed in the last couple decades in science and research, realizing how much we have changed how we feed horses just in these last 20 years. But it's still like yesterday, we would drive that tractor down the lane the mares would line up. We would toss them their hay around the pasture and then scoop out the corn into individual feed dishes. We now know today feeding straight corn to horses is probably not a very good practice. It, it can lead to a lot of issues. But it got me really thinking, like, we have rapidly changed our approaches to feeding horses today in the 2020s than we did in the early 2000s, in the late 1990s, and then going back 100 years? Or what did we feed horses 2,000 years ago? They were under human care, and they were stabled, or they were held into large paddocks or pastures. What did they feed them? How did they keep them going? How did they meet their nutritional requirements. And then what about four or 5,000 years ago when horses were first domesticated? What did they feed them? And why care? It's because it is so important to horse ownership to understand how to feed them. But again, this is all part of their story in understanding our horses today, you need to understand where they were 100 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago to fully appreciate what we have in them today. And that's why we tell these sagas about horses and their origins. And Secretariat being led, he is numbering... The horse... And the horses are the best thing in the world, isn't it? So I suppose one's always, I've always loved them, really, ever since I was a little girl. Everybody's in line, and they're off. The secretary of the way very well has good position. The love. Oh, I never thought owning a horse could mean so much to me. And secretary not taking the lead. The madness. What kind of a horse is that? 
Their story. Mustang is more involved in the, in the early development of this breed than I thought they were, but they were. Welcome to Mad About Horses. Hello, I'm Dr. Chris Mortensen. I'm an equine educator and scientist. I've been doing this for over 20 years. I mean, ever since I was a little boy, I've loved horses. And I've dedicated my life to learning about them and then sharing that knowledge freely to the masses around the world. I'm just so passionate about this. And I'm going to make you this promise today. Stick with me. Equine Nutrition is not one podcast. This is going to be a series of podcasts in the coming years. It is complex today because of where we've been, but it can be easy. There are so many tools available to you today. One's just you can go to madbarn.com and get your diet analyzed for free. No obligations. It, it, it's services like that that are helping horse owners better understand their animals' dietary needs. And it's the understanding this history of, of where we've been and where we're going helps you understand your horse better. So when you look at them today or tomorrow or the next time you see a horse, you'll have a greater appreciation and understanding. Their ancestry, the trials and tribulations they've gone through the last few thousand years. So it's going to be an intriguing story today, and, and, and I'm very, very excited to, to, to talk about it. Now, going back to the origins, this is what one of our very first podcasts was about, Origins of the Horse. And, and in that podcast, I talk about why it's so important to, to understand this. And just to quickly recap, you've got to go back 55 million years. The earth is hot. It's humid. It's sticky. You know, it's, it's the atmosphere in, in North America and Central America. Lots of trees, semi-tropical forests. And the dinosaurs are long gone. Ten million years before that, they, they boom, gone. And you have this furry, small, I don't even think you would recognize it as an equid, but kind of looks like one but it doesn't and it's one and a half feet at the shoulder or what we consider four hands it's it's not very heavy and it's creeping through these dense woodlands munching on leaves munching on twigs nuts berries and that is going to become the horse in 50 billion years that animal is the earliest one we can identify that says, okay, that line through the fossil record, we're able to trace up to what we have today with this 16 hand or over five feet at the shoulder animal we call horses or donkeys or mules. Their diets today are just built on grazing grasslands. So over the last 50 million years, evolution and development, these animals have had to change from this fruitivore, herbivore diet 
to a hindgut fermenter that we have today that, that eats primarily forage. That is the bread and butter of every equine diet today is forage. Evolution has, has driven that and to the point where today horses, digestive systems are totally dependent on what we feed them forage-wise. And then with domestication, we've come in and, and made things a little bit more complex because think what we're asking them to do, right? So if you really start and just imagine, what does a horse need to survive? So we can go to the wild or feral horses, or you can go to the Shavalski's horse. Uh, some say Przewalski's, but Shavalski's is the, is the proper Polish pronunciation. But if you just think of a mature horse out on the plains or prairies of Asia, America, what do you think they need to survive? Obviously, water is the big one. All animals, we need water, right? If we don't have water, we will die quickly. We can survive some time without food, but we still need food because we need to pull the nutrients out of there to keep the body going. But out in the wild, horses need water and they need food, forage, right? They're meant to eat small meals of forage all day long. Their digestive systems have developed to eat these small meals. Their stomachs are small in comparison to their entire digestive tract. It's only about 10% of the whole digestive tract is their stomach. So feed or food or forage is not in the stomach for very long, and then it moves down the rest of the digestive system. Now, I will say, give a quick caveat. Yes, out in the wild, horses can survive fine on just what they can forage out on natural grasslands. Yet, wild horses on average only live 15 to 20 years. Today, in the 2020s, domestic horses are living on average 25 to 30 years. Some horses are living into their 40s now. And a lot of that can be attributed to not only advancements in veterinary medicine, you know, we have some incredible veterinarians around the world taking care of these animals, but it's diet. We have learned so much in the last few decades on how to feed horses. So if you take that, right, what the horse needs, water, then forage, which gives them their protein to build muscle and, and cells and everything, the energy, the calories, that's, that's the fuel, you know, that's the gas tank of the body. So they get that in carbohydrates and fats. They need fiber, which they get in forage. So think of leafy greens or a stalk of celery. If you chew on that, it's, it's high in fiber. Okay, horses need that because that feeds and helps the bugs, the good microbes in the hindgut that horses use to digest that feed and get energy and, and things out of that, vitamins and minerals. So those are the basics that they get out of that. Now, when we go and say, okay, you were now under our care, under human care, so why don't we just feed them hay all day long and, and, and call it a day, right? Give them hay, that's what they eat in the wild, fine. Well, it's a lot more complex than that because what we've done is, remember, domestication, we've taken them, stuck them 
between fences or put them in stalls or put them in paddocks and say, now you're under our care. And now it falls on us, our responsibility to feed them and water them. Make sure they have feed and water each and every day. This is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week obligation to these animals. We've also said, hey, I'm going to jump on your back and I'm going to ride around with you. Or, hey, I'm going to hit you to this wagon. Or, hey, I'm going to hit you to this chariot. Or you're going to plow this field for me. And what that has done is that exercise or work push them to where a forage-only diet is not going to meet their full nutritional needs. And that's where we know today. We know after study, after study, after study the last 50 years, that when we ask these horses to work, it causes them to sweat. So they lose salts, right? So that's one thing we, we and you're going to find out in the history, they've known this, that horses need salt, which is interesting. They need more energy or they're going to lose weight. So we feeding corn like I talked about, and I still cringe at that thought. And, and I wasn't making the decision. And, and, and my professor at the time, I know she looks back and cringes at that too. But, that, you know, we didn't have all the data at the time. And it was a, a, an affordable option to maintain uh, these horses in California. And they were getting a lot of good nutrients out of alfalfa hay. But now that we understand things like non-structural carbohydrates, which can lead to metabolic disorders, things like that, that we'll talk in, in later podcasts. But when we've domesticated them and, and, and limited them to their normal grazing, and then we hook them up to these wagons or we jump on their backs, they need more nutrients. And, and I'll just say this flat out, forage only is not going to provide everything a horse needs. And that also includes horses that aren't under work, horses just out on pasture. They too need extra nutrition. They need some sort of dietary supplement under most conditions. Because just as an example, selenium deficiency is a big one in many soils around the world. So the, the forages that grow, the, the hay that we feed them, would be deficient in selenium if grown on those soils. So then if you feed that only to a horse, they're not reaching their selenium requirement, which is an important antioxidant. So th that's why it's gotten a little bit more complicated than just feeding them forage, but that domestication process limiting horses has pushed humans to find other feeds other than just hay. Now, I'm going to give credit to Feeding the Ancient Horse, written by Thomas Donaghy, who wrote this about 10 years ago in the Journal of the Veterinary History Society. Fascinating paper. It, it, it just, it's so fun to think about horses the last 5,000 years and, and how we've developed them to the horses we have today, but just their impact on human history. And I think that enthusiasm comes across in this podcast, but looking at the stories and what we know from the written histories from thousands of years ago, they were very sophisticated in how they fed their horses. Now, you go back to 5,000 years ago, they were kept in paddocks or large pastures 
could have been herded. The Mongolians, known as as great horse people, uh, they manage large herds. You can go online and look, and you you see hundreds, if not a thousand plus horses that they're herding. These are domestic horses, and they go and pull out the ones they need, and they keep them in large herds, and they graze across the plains of Asia. That's probably how they managed them early on. And the earliest written histories we have on horse feeding date back nearly 3,400 years to the Hittites. There was a man named Kikuli. I hope I'm saying that right. He was a master horse trainer 3,400 years ago. And in tablets, archaeologists have recovered, they have captured some of his writings from 3,400 years ago, and he was training horses to pull chariots. And so we have some of that information about how they fed them, and they were feeding them basic rations of hay with oats and barley, and this is in Central Asia. And even sophisticated enough to say they need hay throughout the night. Here we are in 2024, as I record this today, and we are still trying to, to convince horse owners you should provide forage throughout the day because we, our lives have gotten so busy in the 20th century, 21st century, that we feed horses twice a day. Well, in my career, you know, especially in the last 10 years, really pushing horse owners to, to try to feed three, four, five times a day. We're looking into the research of hay nets to slow down how quickly horses can feed. We're saying feed them overnight so they, they don't have empty stomachs in the morning. Kakuli was talking about this 3,400 years ago. That's how sophisticated they are and where they've come from. So that was just, it's exciting to read that and think, oh, we're so modern today because we have so many research studies and, and, and equine science has become such a huge field in the last 50, 60 years. But they were, they knew the ancient Greeks talked about them. I, I, I talked about Hippocrates and the benefits of horse riding podcast, how even then, over 2,000 years ago, you're talking 23, 2,400 years ago, horseback riding was good for your physical health and mental health. Well, Aristotle, who lived around the time, 4th century BC, so 2,400 years ago, was writing down, he was a very famous Greek philosopher, about horse nutrition. And to quote him, he said, quote, Young green pasture that is forming seed is good for the condition of horse's coat, but that when the grass has stiff awns, it is not so good. End of quote. So even then, they knew that feeding mid-growth, not super young growth plants, but younger growth plants were better than when the stalks got really fibrous, were, you know, it depends on the plant and the grass, but went to seed, you know, big heavy seeds at the end of the stalks. They knew that wasn't good for them. They needed young, younger, lusher forage that's packed more with protein, carbohydrates, and the other nutrients. They had no idea then of specific nutrient classes, but they just knew 2,600 years ago 
when you let horses go out to graze on forage, it needs to be younger and mid-growth uh, forage. So that's like today we tell horse owners, let your horses graze on pastures that are six to eight inches tall, or that's 15 to 20 centimeters. And that's for most grasses. It depends on what forage you're feeding them on. But that's the stage where it's optimal nutritionally for a horse rather than something that's 10 inches or 12 inches long. And you don't want them to graze pasture, you know, less than three or four inches because the horse will nibble the grass all the way down into the dirt. So it's six to eight inches or 15 to 20 centimeters is the sweet spot. And they knew that. And Aristotle was writing about that 2,600 years ago. The Romans, 2,000 years ago, they too knew pastures were important. Claudius Alanius, he was a Roman author on agriculture, stated that pastures need to be well-watered and spacious. We always recommend at least two acres of pasture per mature horse. So they knew that horses need to be spaced to keep the pastures productive. And then they even go in to say, quote, the less palatable grasses are left to seed in rough patches where the horses also dung and urinate. Tall growing weeds colonize these areas. And then where swords are overgrazed or where pastures overgrazed, the lawns become depleted in plant nutrients and they're not productive. So they knew these traditions. We've carried these on traditions for thousands of years. So the, the basics of horse nutrition date back to the Hittites, probably before that. So 4,000 years ago. So when you go out to feed your horses today or tomorrow or whenever you see them next, remember, people have been doing this for thousands of years. Imagine the young girl in Greece carrying the feed bucket out to her family's horse and spending time with her horse. She did that under the same moon and stars that you stand under. That's what gets exciting when you think about this stuff. Now, looking at the history of what type of pastures, this is fascinating because I, I opened up talking about alfalfa, very common hay around the world for horses now. But alfalfa originated in Central Asia. Alfalfa is not a, a plant legume species that is known to be around the world, like certain grasses or, or, or things like that. It originated in Central Asia, and it was the Persians who in 490 BC, so you're looking at 2,500 years ago, invaded Greece, and they introduced alfalfa to the Greeks for their horses. And one of the Greek historians said the best breed of grass for horses is alfalfa. So alfalfa was a very popular plant that they fed. But then you had your, your grass haze, what were typical for the region you lived in. I mean, even in the ancient Greeks, they fed their horses hay. There's very many instances in the archaeological record of humans feeding horses hay that dates back, like I said, the Hittites, you're looking at 3,000, 4,000 years ago. And so they obviously had to know how to grow hay, how to cultivate hay, how to cure it. 
and then feed it to their animals. I mean, that's so when you throw hay to your horse, again, think of the young Egyptian, you know, with their probably wooden rake tossing hay to their horses. It's it's fascinating to think about. Now, mentioning forage, obviously that's where we start with. Now, where do the grains come in? Because we know there has to be some sort of supplemental feed or the horses will waste away. They will break down. There's many instances in the written record dating 2000, 2300 years ago of cavalry horses not being fed proper diets and then breaking down in warfare. But it got me thinking, okay, when did we start feeding grains? Right, Like I said, just 20 years ago, feeding straight corn was still a common practice. There's people listening that probably feed straight oats, I would say. Still a lot of people do that. And again, that, that dates back thousands of years. Now, did horses live as long 100 years ago? Probably not. If we go back the two or three or 4,000 years, the horse lifespan's probably similar to what they were in the wild. They might have lived into their early 20s, but it's really with this modern nutrition that we understand and modern medicine that horses are able to live longer and, and be, be competitive or productive longer in their lives than back. But they knew they were feeding oats and barley back in the day. So they were helping them meet their caloric needs or energy needs. Again, we've carried on these traditions for thousands of years. And I know I've mentioned this name before, Xenophon. We're talking about the cavalry and, and the history of equestrian sports. And, and he lived about 2,500 years ago. He's the one that said, you've got to have a good feeding regime for horses going to war. Because he, you know, he was his horsemanship manual that he had developed for the Greeks back then, written down on how to properly care for horses. But even he recommended feeding a morning and evening meal of grain to horses. And the type of grain the Greeks were feeding at the time was barley. It was widely available. And it was the, the grain of choice for horses in Rome and Greece. So if I asked you today in 2024, what, what's the most popular grain to feed a horse? And I just mentioned it, and you probably are thinking oats, right? Oats. It, it wouldn't be corn. I, I know I opened up feeding corn, but corn's interesting. It dates back to, to Mexico. Over 9,000 years ago, humans were, were starting to cultivate corn, early agriculture. But remember, the, the Europeans didn't come to the Americas till the 1500s, and then that's when horses were reintroduced. So Europeans and Asians, where horses had, had been most of their domesticated history prior to the 1500s, they were feeding other grains. Now, oats was actually a, a very popular feed in, in China and the Near East, where horses were were obviously massive part of the peoples there. But, you know, oats has become more of a, a common feed in the last few hundred years. So back then, they had it figured out, right? Like, didn't you think that they had it figured out? They were feeding the horses forage. They were feeding them grain to make sure they, they maintained body condition. 
So it begs the question, if they figured out 2,000 years ago, would it have changed until we've gotten this advancements in science and things? The other way to ask it is, do you think horses 100 years ago were more similarly fed the way we feed them today, or say the Hittites 3,600 years ago? And Patricia Harris out of the UK wrote a very interesting paper in Developments in Equine Nutrition and the beginning of the end of this century. And she, she kind of wraps this all up about how in the early 1900s, we were feeding them pretty similar to what the Greeks fed. And this was published in the Journal of Nutrition a couple of decades ago, but it, it, it explores horse nutrition over the 20th century. And it is a night and day difference. It has changed so much that it's going to be really interesting near the end of my life where we are because it has changed so much in the last five, 10 years. So imagine in the last hundred. So just to kind of sum up what they were feeding horses in, say, 1908, it was hay, alfalfa hay, grass hay, oats, corn, barley. The only ingredient they really note that changed was they used to feed linseed, but now that's pretty much been replaced as soy. Soy is one of the top protein sources for concentrated feeds in horses today. When you looked at what was fed the most 100 years ago, at least in the United States, because this was, again, looking at the United States, oats was popular in individual horse owners, but actually corn was the number one staple. So in 1912, it was noted that 9.3 million metric tons, which was 27% of all the corn produced in the United States 100 years ago, a little bit over 100 years ago, was fed to horses and mules. So that was the fuel. That was the gasoline that the United States and in Europe and other parts of the world and Canada we're producing, right? We produced fossil fuels to, to fuel our machines. Well, before machines, we had to grow these crops to fuel our horses that were the, the primary. That's, again, why we owe so much to them. 9.3 million metric tons. Now, oats was 4.1 million metric tons. So that was 47% of the total oat crop. Half of oats produced in the United States in 1912 was fed to horses and mules. Now, today, oats is preferred over corn. Now, this is late 90s, and I told you 20-something years ago, we were still feeding corn. But that is when things were starting to change. Because right when I started graduate school, or even my undergrad, horse nutrition over the next 20 years went through a total revolution of what we should be feeding horses. And even today it's changed where the recommendations are forage, forage-based diet. It, it, it circled back to forage being the most critical part of horse nutrition. That's where we start. But I remember working at the racetrack early in my career. I was hot walking racehorses working for one of the top trainers in California. And I remember our feed room had at least 10 different bags of feed. And I had no idea. This was during my undergrad. 
I had no idea what we were feeding him. I remember the apple flavoring that I can smell to this day, but high grain diets, these were horses exercising uh, intensely. We know forage is huge, but you know, these still top athletes need extra nutrition uh, in supplements and, and, and other things. But how did we get from top athletes, 10 different bags of feed, corn, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, to today in 2024, where we shouldn't feed straight corn? And why did it change from 1912 to 2024 or 1908 or, or whatever year you pick? Well, what drove it was the, the post-war era of World War II. And, and this changed academia in the United States and Europe. The, the war was horrific. But just speaking from my own experience and, and my old professors that I knew coming up in my career, and then their professors, after World War II, the United States had the GI Bill. So they sent a lot of soldiers uh, to the universities. And there was this huge investment in science and education. And then even things like the space race drove so much innovation that we have cell phones today. We have pocket computers, right? We have access to all the information that today we're in the information age. Well, it was that post-World War II in the 1940s and 50s where you had this huge interest in, in research and education. Now, you had some stuff going on before then, not to discount any prior research, but it was not like this post-war boom that we see this massive increase in animal science and in, in raising cattle and sheep. And this is even despite horses being way less important than they were before World War II. Because we had automobiles, we had modern machines, we didn't need horses. There still was a segment like you listening to this podcast, like me, that loved these animals and realized we still needed to investigate them. The late 1960s, I think, is when we saw a major shift in equine nutrition and equine science. Uh, one of my good friends, Dr. Sarah White Springer, she's down at Texas A&M, and others wrote a, a very nice article just a few months ago that, that was the past, present, and future of equine science. And this was published in the Journal of, of Equine Veterinary Science. And in that article, she writes how one of my societies that I belong to, the Equine Science Society, was formed. Uh, 27 equine nutritionists and physiologists came together and they started this society to start talking about horses and research and sharing research and starting to collaborate and developing an equine science program. So this was 50 years ago. And I remember going to my very first equine science society meeting over 20 years ago, and the majority of papers have been equine nutrition. The majority of research has always been nutrition because it's that important to horses. And done so much research in the last 30, 40 years that our understanding of equine nutrition is greater than it's ever been in our history. So when we look back at what we fed 100 years ago, when we look back what we fed three, 4,000 years ago, yeah, it was enough 
to keep horses going, but they weren't at their top efficiency. The horses that were dealing with colic or the horses that had metabolic issues, they were cold. You know, they were cold from the herd. They weren't top athletes competing around the world. They weren't going to the Olympic Games. We have such a greater understanding of what to feed them because of all of the research we've done. Like things like forage testing. They they tested forage 100 years ago, but their analytical chemistry understanding 100 years ago was nowhere near where we are today. I remember going to this meeting back in the mid 2000s and it just it was we have hot topics in equine nutrition and labs or you know scientists throughout the world united states and europe and south america and, and central america mexico and, and japan a lot of great research comes out of there korea i would come together in in, in this one year i remember it seemed like every presentation was about fat, feeding fats to horses. And prior to this research, we didn't understand feeding fats to horses as well as we do today. We didn't push feeding fats to horses. And I remember teaching my students, you know, 15 years ago, we now know feeding fat, like in the form of oils, those omega-3 fatty acids and omega-6s and why, you know, what are they and, and, and why are they important? We didn't know that 34. We, we, we had an inkling, but we didn't know how good the horses were today. So today that's a big part of their diet where we're getting away from feeding that straight corn because diets high in carbohydrates, sugars, and starches like what's found in corn leads to metabolic disorders in horses is, is not healthy for them. So to sum that all up, equine nutrition is somewhat complex today, <laughs> but that rapid change has come really in the last 50, 60 years with PhD scientists like myself, my friends, some of you listening, uh, some of you are aspiring to be equine nutritionists or equine scientists. Uh, industry's driving a lot of innovation today. Companies are uh, pouring millions of dollars into research and advancements in, in equine science and equine nutrition. So it is exciting, but I'll tell you, thousands of years ago, they woke up early like you do and fed their horses. They got the hay. They gave them some sort of supplemental feed in the form of grain back then. But today, uh, your diets are either bags of feed with some supplements or you're supplementing feed in different ways. But back then, just like today, they did what they thought was best. And what we are feeding is, is constantly evolving. But who knows? I mean, I'm excited. I'm really excited to see where we're going to be in five years, 10 years, 20 years down the line. And I know the only goal, which warms my heart, is that it's to improve the quality of life of our equine companions. It's always so exciting to, to, to look back at horses and, and then look forward uh, where we're going. And I did open up with, with Mad Barn Free Consulting. I mean, 
go get a free consultation on what your horse is is eating. It's free. There's no obligation. You go to madbarn.com, top right, analyze diet, click on it, fill it out. One of our qualified equine nutritionists, these are these are people that have studied this and know this. They're the experts and they're going to analyze your diet for you and 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 see if you're missing any nutrients cuz we're that advanced today. We have computers, we have the science, we have the the research to say this is what a horse needs day in, day out, and based on how you use them. If if you don't ride them to, I'm competing or I want to compete at the Olympic Games. Everywhere in between, we know what those horses generally need. And then if there's any specialties with your horse, hey, my horse is doing this. Again, an equine nutritionist, you want to speak to them because they will help you give the best diet you can for your horses. The other thing, I just want to thank you for listening. Again, it, I think it's important to me that you know how much I appreciate you clicking download, pressing play, getting excited about the information, sharing this this passion of horses with me. If you can share any of your favorite episodes on social media, that will really warm my heart and, and just as a little thank you to me you know, for the hours I put in week in, week out, putting this podcast together. But that helps so much because that's how podcasts grow. And if you haven't yet, if you don't mind, just click on a five-star review, iTunes, Spotify, or whatever app you're using. That helps because that shows us that we're doing the right thing and we can start developing other avenues of education across other platforms, which are in the works. Uh, madbarn.com also learn tab articles social media links tiktok facebook instagram check it out you can always email me podcast at madbarn.com but thanks for listening and and thanks for caring and thank you for the passion the passion the passion the passion you just have to look at horses in awe and love them with everything you got